Today's sermon title is Be Made Low. Be Made Low as we journey through Mark chapter 10. Now, I wanna read to you two different quotes from two different people throughout history, all right? So here's the first quote. You should be able to follow along with me. A man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all the things that have been theirs, to hear the weeping of those who cherish them, to take their horses between his knees and to press in his arms the most desirable of their women. That's Genghis Khan. But you never heard Genghis Khan quoted in church before. <laughs> Next. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, that, so that you through his poverty might become rich. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is, not the one who, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And then have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God said that in his word. Now, one of these quotes represents human nature, our sinful tendencies to define greatness in this world according to fleshly terms. You heard it there from Genghis Khan. Get mine, take anyone out, climb the ladder, hurt others in the process. On the other hand, we see how God calls us to define greatness in this world, that through the gospel, through our regenerated hearts that have new life, we are called to be made low. We are called to serve others, to walk in humility, to recognize our weakness. The world will go ahead and reinforce the flesh and our sinful tendencies that whatever the cost, I'm willing to pay it to get more, to get ahead. The gospel and the spirit of God dwelling within us will reinforce who God calls us to be. That following Jesus is not about getting more, but following Jesus is about him being enough. So I can be made low because Jesus is enough. I don't need to attain worldly greatness. I don't need to go after the things of this world because I already have everything I need in Christ Jesus. In our story today, through James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we're gonna see ourselves on display here. We're gonna see our natural tendency to go after worldly greatness and how it leaves us high and dry and empty and, and full of vanity and nothingness. But Jesus will present us with an alternate picture and a more beautiful story. And so here's the main point. True greatness is found in being made low, not being lifted high. True greatness is found in being made low, not being lifted high. And as we kind of journey through this text together, I'm gonna to do three different compare and contrast for us uh, as our outline. First, we're gonna look at our definition of greatness versus how Jesus embodies greatness. Then we're gonna look at our sense of identity versus the identity that Jesus gives to us. And then third, we're gonna look at our idea of our deserved realities versus Jesus's ransom in our place. All right, true greatness is found in being made low, not being lifted high. First point, 
our definition of greatness versus the way in which Jesus embodies greatness for us. All right, so you just heard those two different quotes. Genghis Khan defines greatness as conquering and taking over and attaining power and prestige and rank and honor. The Bible will define greatness in different terms. So what I want you to do right off the bat is just look at verses 35 through 37 in Mark 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to James and John, what do you want me to do? And they replied, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, right out of the gates, we meet James and John. You've seen them before already in the gospel accounts. James and John alongside Peter are a part of the inner three, the the closest circle to Jesus. Though all of the disciples had walked with Jesus for about three years during his earthly ministry, James and John had a privileged picture into the heart and the mind and the life of Jesus. They were the closest, the most intimate to Jesus. And then they approach him and they make kind of this really outrageous, Outrageous request. It's less of a request and it's, it's kind of more of a demand of Jesus. In verse 35, they said to Jesus, it doesn't say they asked Jesus, they said to Jesus, do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, that's, that's a big deal right there. Like to be able to go up to Jesus and speak to him, that way we're already beginning to see that James and John are not seeing themselves rightly. They're not seeing their lot in life correctly. But in the midst of that, we see the grace of Jesus on display. Jesus doesn't hammer them, right? That would be my tendency. Like James and John, who do you guys think you are? But that's not what Jesus does. He just simply responds with a question back to them. What do you want me to do for you? All right, you want me to do something? What, what is that thing? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in glory. Actually, in Matthew's account, what we learn is that they brought their mom with them and she does the dirty work for them. Like they're afraid themselves to ask Jesus this question. So they had to bring mama along for safety, which I get. You guys are all afraid of my mom. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, these, this is those closest to Jesus, the most intimate circle, and they miss it. They miss what Jesus is trying to do in them. And if this is possible for the closest to Jesus, how much more possible is it for us to miss it? Now, what are they missing? What they're missing is what Jesus is calling them to in terms of kingdom greatness versus worldly greatness. You see it in their request. Jesus, let us sit with you in glory. And then later on, Jesus will say, if you want to be great, you must be low. You don't want to be like the Gentiles. They're great ones. Exercise authority over you. Jesus is already correcting them. But James and John have the wrong picture of what it means to be great. And what we learn down in verse 41 is that the rest of the disciples are indignant at them. Now, they're not mad at them because they made a bad request. The other 10 disciples are mad at them because James and John got there first. The other disciples are jealous of James and John because they're gonna be at the right and left hand of Jesus and they all want that. Now, if it's possible for James and John, those closest to Jesus, to allow sinful tendencies and fleshly, worldly desires to define greatness for them, how much more possible is it for us? How much more possible is it for us to define greatness in terms of rank and prestige and power and honor and having the seat in first place and being seen as the famous one, the one to be admired? Now, I think we may not have these requests that James and John have, but... 
We all have allowed our own sinful tendencies and the world to infect the way in which we define greatness. Let me just kind of explore a few different definitions for us, how we might define greatness in today's world. Uh, First, we define worldly greatness according to being intellectually elite, right? We live in a world where the intellectually capable, the ones with letters before or after their name, are seen as better than and greater than the rest of this world. Now, I'm not dogging education. I've already got three degrees. I'll probably get a couple more before it's all said and done. But what I am saying is we've lived in a world where the divide between the educated and the uneducated is growing wider, and those who are intellectually capable are seen as greater We know this is not true. Some of the smartest people I know are also the biggest jerks I know. I I heard someone yesterday say that the U.S. elite, the intellectual elite, are a bunch of credentialed morons. I'm just repeating what I heard. Those who are not educated are seen as less than uncultured, even barbaric in today's culture. And we've begun to define greatness as being someone who's smart and knows big words and has useless pieces of paper framed on their walls. I've got those framed on my walls. That does not define greatness, but we've decided to say, I will become truly great when I finally get educated enough. We've defined greatness according to monetary value. Why? Because power follows money. We do realize on both sides of the political aisle, we do not have the politicians we have because of their policies. We have the politicians we have because they're the best fundraisers. And power follows money on both sides of the aisle. How silly has it been to watch a bunch of billionaires try to race each other to outer space, wasting money that could be used for good things in this world? Why they want to be seen as powerful. I got this money. I can go to places you can't go to, you little plebs. We've defined greatness in terms of money. Fame, right? Worldly power, worldly greatness is around fame. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to be heard. I want to be admired. We've turned our lives into brands that we've prostituted out for others to see us and follow us. This is why things like Tinder and Snapchat and OnlyFans exist because people are willing to prostitute out their bodies in order to get famous. Why? So they can have this temporary status as being worldly great. I am great in the eyes of this world. We've defined greatness according to family of origin. Don't you know who my family is? Don't you know the lineage I come from? Don't you know how much money we have? Don't you know my last name? No one cares. We can keep going and going. These are just a few examples And what's going on here with James and John is they've allowed the worldly ways to seep into their mindset. We've seen them try to attain worldly greatness first by being ruthlessly competitive, beating the other disciples to the punch, getting to Jesus first, asking for that seat of honor before anyone could get there. To be ruthlessly competitive means they were trying to cut you out or cut you down in order that I might get mine. And how guilty are we of doing that? In the workplace, right? Christians should not be known for that, trying to get ahead at the expense of others, being ruthlessly competitive to get that promotion, to get that raise. 
We see this unbridled ambition from James and John. I don't care what the other disciples think. I have this ambition and I'm going to get it. I don't even care what Jesus thinks. I'm gonna get what I want to get. So I can approach Jesus and say, give me what I want. We've all done this. It's present in each of us. In some deeply personal ways, I battle all of these. Listen, I want my thoughts to be heard. I want my words to be heard. I wanna be respected and I wanna be seen as competent. I wanna be admired. These are all struggles that I have in my own sinful pride. Why? Because I think that will make me great. If enough people hear me and enough people follow me and enough people validate me, then I'll finally have the thing that my soul is longing for. And that's not true. That is not greatness. And we see these things begin to seep their way into the life of local churches, right? I give a lot of money, so I should be able to direct the way this church goes. You can take my money, you should take my choices. We've seen it go with education. I'm smart, I know theology, therefore I should be in charge here. I wanna get on stage, I gotta preach, I gotta sing. I gotta be the one that's admired because of all these talents I have. I come from this church or this family or this background, therefore give me the seat of honor in this church. And all these are, are a bunch of poorly veiled threats to try and assert our own ideas of greatness into the life and the health of a local church. And every bit of this just reveals how insecure, how fragile, and how weak each of us is. I struggle with this, you struggle with this, we all struggle with this. If James and John could, we all do. Jesus, though, will give us a much more compelling view. He will embody greatness to us. Glance down at verse 38. Jesus said to them, to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Yeah, right. And Jesus said to them, the cup I, that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. Jesus will show us that this path to true kingdom greatness comes through some pretty humble means. Jesus will use two metaphors here in his response to James and John, and he'll use the metaphor of a cup and the metaphor of a baptism, and he'll show us what true greatness looks like. First, he gives us the metaphor of the cup. Throughout the scriptures, the cup is a metaphor to bring about the idea of suffering. Let, let, read along with me Isaiah chapter 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, for you ha who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dredges the bowl, the cup of staggering. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more." And then we go into the New Testament and the day before Jesus is gonna be crucified, he's in the garden and what is he crying out to the Father? Father, let this cup pass from me. 
but your will, Father, not my will. Throughout the scriptures, we see constantly that this idea of cup is equated with the idea of suffering. In kingdom greatness, what it means is we are made low and willing to embrace the road of suffering, knowing that along the road of suffering, we find true greatness in this world. And then Jesus will also give this metaphor of the baptism. He says, you will not, you're gonna be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. There's a lot of baptizes right there. Baptism is simply a metaphor in the scripture for being plunged into calamity and death. We see in the Psalms, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And then in the New Testament, Paul will call the death of Jesus his very baptism into death. Jesus says that true greatness through the cup and through baptism is found in being made low. It's found in suffering. It's found in dying to self, in dying to sin, in dying to our, our, the things we're drawn to in this world. To share in kingdom greatness is to share in the passion of Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death. So, uh, Romans chapter eight says to us, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We love that part. What about the next part? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When James and John are asking to be seated in glory with Jesus, they don't know that they're asking for suffering. To follow in kingdom greatness is to follow along the passion of Christ. So Jesus will embody for us what true greatness is. He'll teach us that true greatness is found in being made low. Jesus himself left heaven's throne. He left perfection. He entered into our muck and our mire. Jesus put on human flesh. He dwelt among us. Jesus willingly made himself low for our sake. True greatness is not found on the high and exalted road. True greatness is found on the dusty backcountry road. Jesus will say true greatness is found in associating yourself with the weak. Throughout all of Jesus's ministry, we see him associating himself with sinners, with outcasts, with tax collectors, with fishermen, with the less than. We see him at associating himself with the uneducated non-elite in society. He associates himself with those that are not rich with fat bank accounts. We, don't, we do not see him associating himself with those with good family of origin, notoriety in society. We find Jesus going after the weak. Greatness is not found in attaching yourself to the best, the biggest, and the brightest. Greatness is found in associating yourself with the least, the last, and the lost, the weak among us. And this should be good news for us because if Jesus didn't associate himself with the weak, he would not associate himself with us. Every one of us is weak and fragile and insecure, and we all need to get over ourselves and find that good news is found in seeing ourselves rightly as the weak ones to whom Jesus associates with. Jesus teaches us that true greatness is found in walking in anonymity. How often in the Gospel of Mark have we seen Jesus heal someone or cast out a demon or save someone or have this astonishing teaching? And at the end of what he does, he uses this phrase, go, but don't tell anyone. 
Go and don't talk about me. Go and don't mention me. Why? Because Jesus knows true greatness is not found in being famous. True greatness is found in being humble and anonymous. You know the greatest acts on earth are the ones you never hear of. The greatest preachers on earth are the ones that don't even know how to spell podcast. The greatest local churches on earth are not the mega ones that 12-part podcast series are made about. The greatest churches on earth are the local ones that are humbly and quietly serving and loving their community, regardless of money, people, status, or fame. Jesus says true greatness is found in being gladly anonymous. And then Jesus says true greatness is found in having content hearts. James and John wanted more, but they didn't realize in Jesus they already had enough. They already had enough. They had more than the other disciples. They were a part of his inner circle, but even the rest of the disciples had more than enough because they had Jesus. How much of us get caught up in these worldly ways of thinking, believing, I gotta get more to finally be happy. I gotta get more to finally get my lot in life. I, fi- I gotta get more to, to have hope and peace in this world. And Jesus saying, no, be content. You have me, and in having me, you have everything. To have everything without Jesus is to have nothing. To have nothing with Jesus is to have everything. Having content hearts. And if James and John are being ruthlessly competitive with this unbridled ambition, Jesus will say the path to true greatness is not found in ruthless competition, but in godly humility. Jesus in Philippians 2 humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if humility is not below our Savior, humility ain't below us. We are called to be godly and humble in our pursuits in this world. And we are not after unbridled ambition. We are people who are peaceful and peaceable in this world, content with what Jesus has given us, walking with peace, not trying to take others out to get more. Our definition of greatness, just like James and John, is so off. Get more, be famous, have more. But Jesus embodies for us true greatness, to be low, to be humble, to be anonymous, to be peaceable. Jesus shows us what this looks like. And then we play this divine imagination game. What if we, Story Church, as a church, embodied these characteristics of Jesus? What if we were low? What if we were humble? What if we were peaceful? I imagine what that could look like, man. It would be a church where everyone serves, a church where everyone's humble, a church where everyone's unified, even in diversity, a church where everyone sacrifices, a church where everyone is transformed by the gospel and a church where everyone flourishes. That's what's on the line for us. If we pursue true godly kingdom greatness and we refuse to go after greatness in the terms of this world, let's get our definition of greatness right. Let's be like Jesus. Next thing I want us to consider is our sense of identity versus the identity that Jesus gives us. I just want to draw out our definition, our operating definition of greatness is birthed out of our belief, our sense of our identities. Now you might feel like I keep harping on this issue of identity at Story Church and I'm going to as long as you put a mic on my face because I believe that identity is the issue of our day. 
We have to get identity right, Story Church. We have to believe what the Bible teaches on identity. Why? Because who we believe ourselves to be leads to how we act. If we believe ourselves to be something other than who Christ has made us to be, we're gonna act in the way of this world. We're gonna act with sinful tendencies and we're gonna be left hanging. We're gonna be left empty. We're gonna be left pursuing worthless things and we will become worthless in the process. But Jesus will give us an alternate identity. Before we go there, I want us to explore some modern lies of what identity is, okay? So I've got six for us. The first lie of of our sense of identity is this. I am what I have. I am what I have. My identity is nothing more than what belongs to me. And this is more than just money. This is materials. This is relationships. This is belonging. This is history. This is what I have or what I don't have in this world. And that leads to us, if we have a lot, we believe ourselves to be greater than others. And if we have nothing, it causes us to believe ourselves to be less than others. The first lie is that my identity is determined by what I have in this world. The second lie is I am what I do or what I've done. Think about this. How often when you meet someone for the first time do you say your name and what you do for a living, right? Here's what I do. My name's Travis, and then I kind of stumble out and like mumble a little bit. I'm a pastor because a lot of times behavior is going to change real fast when they find out I'm a pastor. And if you actually know me, like I don't care. Um, I'd love to just get to know you as a person. Don't change who you are. But often my name is blank, and I'm a teacher, I'm a student, I'm a scientist, I'm a blank, I'm a business owner, fill in the blanks. And we lead with that. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a child. We lead our identities with what we do or what we've done. And this again causes us to live with pride or with shame. I've done a lot in this world, therefore my chest is out, my head's held high and I'm full of pride or I haven't accomplished a whole lot so I must be full of shame because the world sees me as less than. I am what I've done. I am what others say of me. This is the power of words, right? The Bible teaches us constantly that words are powerful. So we begin to believe what others have said about me. I'm super awesome and I can do anything in this world because my parents told me I could. Or I'm nothing and I can't do anything in this world because my parents told me I'm worthless. The power of words. I'm nothing more than what people have said about me. Another lie of identity is I am who I I was at my worst moments. I am defined by my worst, the moment I've never told another soul about, the moment that keeps me up at night, the moment that haunts me in my dreams. I'm defined by my worst moments. Or alternatively, I am who I am at my best moments. I am marked by the incredible thing I did recently or that one time. This is why we all ride on the high of good deeds, right? We feed the homeless guy on the side of the freeway and man, we're riding around like I just did something real cool. Like just do that because it's honorable. Don't do that to feel better about yourself. Or finally, I am what I feel. My emotions define me. Right? Emotions aren't simply a dashboard light showing me something's off in my soul, but emotions are the very objective and standard truth in this world. I am what I feel, and I can be nothing more than that. Why are all of these lies? Why are these, ident- these, these senses of identity lies to us? Well, because if you're defined by what you have, like what you actually have, then you have nothing 
in this world. If you're defined by what you do or what you've done, then none of us are truly impressive. Not a single one of us in this room is that impressive. If you're defined by what others say of you, then you're much worse than you actually think you are because you ought to hear the way people talk about you behind closed doors. Huh? Awkward laughter because we know it's true. We're all guilty of gossiping. That's sinful and we need to repent of that. If you're defined by your worst moments, then the depths of depravity in this room is overwhelming. If we're defined by our best moments, then we're defined by rare forms of goodness, but mostly truly awfulness. And if we're defined by what we feel, then there can be no stability in our life because emotions toss you about like the wind and the waves. But here's the real reason why these senses of identity are lies. Each one of these are achieved by you. It puts you at the center of the universe, and this is a works-based, efforts-based righteousness, a works-based, efforts-based greatness in this world. And Jesus, on the other hand, says, I'm giving you an identity that's not achieved, but it's received. And the identity that we received as a gift of grace from Jesus is that he calls us his beloved child is that he says you are loved and you are forgiven of your sins. You are reconciled to a right relationship with the Father. You get to eat at my table, be welcomed in my home, and you're gonna dine with me forever in my kingdom. And here's the truth. None of us achieve that. Every one of us, if we follow Jesus, just simply receive that as a free gift of faith. And the faith itself was not mustered up by you. Faith itself was a gift by Jesus too. Our identity is received, not achieved. Jesus says your gifted identity, it's not about what you have by your effort, it's what Jesus has given to you by his grace. It's not what you do or what you've done because all that results in is condemnation. It's what he has done for you, past tense. It's not about what others say of you. It's what Jesus says of you. And he says, you are made in my image. You are redeemed. You are restored. You are loved. And nothing and no one can change that. It's not who you are at your worst moments because Jesus outed you on the cross, proving you to be much worse than you actually think you are. It's not who you are in your best moments because in the Bible, our best moments are called filthy rags. And if there weren't children in the room, I'd tell you what that actually means. Come to me afterwards if you wanna know. It's not your best moments, it's Jesus' best moment and his righteousness which clothes you. It's not your feelings about yourself, it's what God thinks of you. Why is this important in the scheme of true greatness? When we live out of our own sense of identity, we serve, number one, us. We live for self, like James and John trying to crush the other 10 disciples to get to this position of prestige and honor. But when we live for Jesus and the identity he has given to us, it frees us up to live for him and for others. Look down at verse 42. And Jesus called them, that's the rest of the disciples, to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus compares again. He says, the Gentiles, they got it wrong. 
They're great ones, the worldly great ones. Man, they exercise their authority. They lord it over you. They wanna be in the seat of honor. They want everyone to serve them. But in the kingdom, it will not be that among you. Instead, we serve others and we become slave of all. When we live out of our own sense of identity, we just serve self. When we come into this identity that Jesus gives us, we are freed up to be a servant and a slave of all. Why? Because our reputation does not matter. You realize when we're pursuing worldly greatness, it's just simply because we think our reputations mean something. We want others to follow us, be wowed by us, admire us, have that place of honor. And Jesus says that's empty and worthless and nothing. But to be freed up to live as a servant of all and a slave of God, that's where you're gonna find true freedom. That's where you're gonna find true joy. That's where you're gonna find true meaning. That's where you're gonna find true purpose. It's not about becoming worldly great. It's about being come, becoming great in the kingdom, which means being made low, not being exalted high. So what does that look like again, church? If we're a servant and slave of God and others, it means there's nothing beneath us. It means we willingly take the dirtiest job, the hardest job, the most hidden job. We take the quiet job. We gladly walk in anonymity like Jesus, not seeking honor and fame and prestige, but we just humble ourselves, walk that backcountry road, serving where needs are. What does that look like here? Who knows? That looks like picking the connect cards up after service, actually helping tear the tents down, not standing around just talking, but actually serving. Listen, your friends are gonna be your friends after teardown's done. Talk with them then. If we're coming here simply to take, not to give, we've got this thing wrong. What does this look like? When we say we've got needs in kids' ministry, man, sign up. That is not child care. That is becoming a servant and a slave to the parents and the kids at Story Church so that the gospel might continue to get out. What does it look like, man? It looks like just quietly holding the door for someone, holding their baby if they're overwhelmed. If you get another meal train, sign up for it. Don't avoid that one. It looks like going to someone's home saying, how can I help you? What needs do you have? How can I meet those needs in our neighborhoods? It's finding our neighbors that can't do things. We got a neighbor, Pat, across the street. We're trying to help her out as much as possible. She's like, I don't know, 80, 83, something like that. She can hardly walk, pull her trash cans in and out, hang her stuff. I'm not saying that so you can be impressed by us. That's just easy work for us. But we can do that, church. We can do that with our coworkers. We can do that with each other. And here's the truth. On the other end of being freed up by our identity in Jesus, we get to just serve and love and become a slave of God and others, not worrying about our reputation. So let us be that church. Let us not go after worldly greatness. It means nothing. Finally, we can be made low because the reality of comparing our deserved realities versus what Jesus has done for us in his ransom. I say this all the time, I'm just gonna keep saying this. If there's one word I want us to eradicate from our vocabulary, it's deserve. Like we gotta stop saying that word deserved. Now, if we wanna play the deserve game, like oftentimes I deserve honor, I deserve prestige, I deserve power, I deserve a place, I deserve to have my voice heard, I deserve to be seen and admired, I deserve blah, 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 it's all whatever. But if we're actually gonna play the deserved game according to what the Bible says, what do we deserve? Hell, condemnation, wrath, punishment. 
This is what we actually deserve according to the Bible. We think like James and John, we, re- we deserve these seats of honor, the right and the hand, left hand of Jesus. No, we don't deserve the seat of honor. According to the Bible, what we deserve is the seat right next to Satan in the pit of hell because of our sin. But that's where verse 45 comes in. This is where John Piper says Christianity turns to gospel. Read verse 45 with me. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even Jesus himself was made low, became a servant and a slave, living not for self, but living for others. And what did Jesus do? He gave his life as a ransom for many. And up in verse 32 through 34, Jesus described what his ransom looked like, and it was brutal. Mark gives us some very clear details of what the ransom looked like. It looked like Jesus walking to Jerusalem, where he knew he would be arrested and put on trial, and he would be mocked and betrayed and spit on and be given a crown of thorns. He would be flogged and beaten within an inch of his life, and then he would be forced to carry a wooden cross up a hill where they would drive nails into his hands and his ankles and then they would push that cross up and he would hang from that cross with blood coming out externally and internally as he would lift himself up just to catch a breath of air before eventually he would collapse and suffer with his whole body filling with blood. This is what the ransom of Jesus looked like. He would be killed for us, dying the death we deserve. And I know those are harsh terms, but friends, we cannot desensitize the cross. We look at the cross as some kind of thing we we tattoo on our bodies or wear as a sideways thing on a necklace. We've taken the brutality of the cross out of it. The brutality of the cross is that the savior of the world was beaten and killed for us. And we need to sit in that. It was our sin that put him there. We need to feel that the brutality of the cross. It's where Jesus paid ransom. Now, ransom would have been a familiar word to the original audience. It means to pay bail to get someone out of jail. Now, biblically, I wanna clarify something to you. Many of us have this false perception of how ransom works in the Bible. We view this world in kind of dualistic terms, that there's two kingdoms, that Jesus rules over one of them, Satan rules over the other. There's a rope connecting them and they're playing this divine game of tug of war. And we're kind of hanging in the middle, like which side are we gonna end up on? Which side are we gonna end up on? That's not how the Bible describes Jesus did not pay ransom to Satan. That would put Jesus in debt to Satan and Jesus is not in debt to anyone. Jesus did not pay Satan some kind of financial contribution so that we could be freed from Satan's kingdom and put in his. That's not how ransom works. In the Bible, ransom actually works like this. God the Father is also judge, and he is holy, and he is blameless, and he is perfect. And because of our sin, we deserve wrath and punishment and condemnation. This is our deserved reality because of our sin against a high and holy God who is exalted and without equal. And because our God is perfect, he does not leave sin unpunished. 
punished. And so we have wrath that is due us. And he is the judge of the universe. And prior to Jesus entering the picture, the father declares us guilty, condemned to death for eternity. But that's where Jesus' ransom comes in. It's this idea of substitutionary atonement. Jesus becomes our substitute, comes into our place. He absorbs the wrath of the father that we deserve. He pays our debt that we could never pay. Colossians chapter two tells us we have a debt to the father we could never pay back. Jesus pays it in full. So here's what happens with Jesus's ransom. The father no longer is our judge, but he is just our father. And when he looks at us, he does not judge us condemned to hell for eternity. He looks at us and says, son, daughter, mine, forever, forgiven, mercy, grace, not because we earned it and we deserve it, but because Jesus paid that ransom. That's what ransom means. And we have to get this right, church. Jesus willingly and freely goes to the cross to pay our debt in full. Jesus absorbs the Father's wrath that we deserve. Jesus dies and descends into the hell that we deserve. Jesus pays our debt before the judge of the universe who then becomes our Father. In his ransom, Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, him being Jesus. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for our guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Why can we be made low? Because in true kingdom greatness, we are always low. And Jesus himself humbled himself to pay our ransom. And again, if this is not below our savior, it cannot be beneath us. First Corinthians tells us because of this reality, we were bought at a steep price and our life doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. We are called to be servant and slave of God and others. So what does this look like? It means constantly waking up and putting to death sinful, selfish desires. It means constantly waking up and putting to death self-seeking desires. It means becoming self-sacrificial, dying to our idea of greatness and being awakened to true kingdom greatness where in Jesus's ransom, he purchased the life and the souls of many. Verse 45 says, where if we willingly step into becoming self-sacrificial and self-giving, we will serve and become the slave of many and imagine what God could do through us, church. True greatness is not found in being exalted. It's found in being made low. Let us be people with a single-minded pursuit who pursue lowliness in this world, humility and self-sacrifice. Pray with me. Father, we love you. And we do thank you for the ransom of Jesus where he went to our place on the cross. He descended to the death we deserved and he did it for the joy that was set before him, his inheritance among many. 
God, I pray we would be a church who become like our Savior, servant and slave of all, resisting this idea of worldly greatness, trying to go after fame, money, power, acclaim, prestige, honor, but we would gladly put that to death and take up humility and anonymity and contentness and peaceableness. God, would you make that true of us? And would you birth out of that, God, uh, a sense of desperation for more of you so we might serve others freely. We might serve our community freely. We might serve our world freely. We, do all, we, we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.